Poya. This is Robbie. Welcome to Uncharted and Eclectic. And thanks for joining us again. So excited today for our guest, um, who I was, I'm fortunate to know personally, and we'll get to know a little bit better, uh, Mandy Cole. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Awesome. Well, Mandy, we like to kick the show off with just like a little personal background um, and a little bio about yourself, um, especially on kind of where you grew up, um, you know, and, and, and that stage of your life in college and, and uh, kind of how, how that led you to the Bay Area uh, today. Sure. Um, so I'm a Southerner. I was born in Atlanta, Georgia and moved to North Carolina when I was 10. Both my parents originally from North Carolina. And um, so technically, you know, I think everybody says home is where you went to high school. So Raleigh is my, ho my home. Um, went to Chapel Hill, um, as Robbie knows all too well, because I am a huge college um, basketball fan. Although this past year probably needed to take a pause on that. We have a little joke that Roy Williams actually is behind the whole coronavirus so that he wouldn't have to go a year without being in the, <laughs> in the, in the, um, in the big tournament. Um, but so went to school there and, um, and then the way that I got out um, to the Bay Area and I guess kicked off my career. So I've been in the Bay now for um, 20 years, um, but in between I lived in 15 cities. I used to open new markets for city search, but my first real job when I graduated from school, I moved um, much to my parents' dismay after being so um, generous to pay for my college. Um, I moved to Steamboat Springs and was a ski bum for a few months and then realized that it's not really that much fun when you, you know, the last week of the month you have no money and decided to move back home and started in sales. I'm selling long distance um, telephone and telephone equipment to small businesses door to door in North Carolina in July. So it was a really good way to <laughs> learn to break in and get some tough skin. Um, and then I heard about this little company called City Search, and um, a friend of mine from school had introduced me to the sales manager there. It, they were, it was the test market, ended up getting a job there, and um, really my first real sales job besides the door-to-door, -door, but on a team with a manager that actually was trying to teach me something. And they decided to have a contest. They were going to open San Francisco as the first major market and said, wait, we're going to take the top two reps for whatever month it was. And I remember going home and telling um, or going to my parents' house. Um, I actually did have my own apartment at that time, but went to my parents' house and was telling them this and said, guess what? I'm going to win this contest and I'm going to move to San Francisco. And my dad who is, um, has always been my biggest fan, but also likes to be a real, a realist said, I think that's great, honey, but you just started and there's 10 other people on your team. And, or I think we had 15 people. Um, but I just, you know, figured out how to do it. And a month later was moving to San Francisco with a guy on my team. We drove a U-Haul across the U S and that's really how I made it to the West coast and my first startup experience. That's awesome. And, and so I, I was not aware of the ski bomb story. Um, and that, that's, that's a fun, um, a fun caveat. Did you always know that you were going to go into sales and, and, and like, after you came back from that experience in Steamboat Springs, like, how did you kind of arrive at like, uh, was it something where somebody gave you a nudge and said your personality would be a good fit for this or, or um, like what were the circumstances that led you to that, that first job at City Search? 
A great question. No, I did not. And I think I found that most people, uh, Robbie, you would probably agree, that are in sales never thought that that's where they'd be. Um, I think the stigma around sales is getting better, but for a long time, it felt like it was this like, you know, used car salesman. If you were in sales, you were always trying to hustle people or um, it just didn't feel like a um, job, which the irony of it is, I think it's one of the most fascinating careers because the folks that are really good at sales, it is about um, you know, really being able to, there's a lot of skill around being able to understand and get people to talk about what their real problems and issues are and be able to, you know, first identify if you can fix it or not and know when to hold it, know when to fold it, and then how you do that and get, so I think it's a very interesting um, and I've developed a big passion for it. But I think initially um, when I was in Steamboat, I was um, <laughs> working two jobs. One, I was in sales at the um, group sales for the Sheraton there. But the other one, I was working at um, the saloon, which um, Steamboat has a big rodeo circuit. And um, so the rodeo would come to town and then the cowboys would come in and it's like a full on TNN dance floor. <clears throat> so very interesting start. Um, but I think when I moved back, I was, I think mostly my parents is who I talked to. And my dad said, well, you like to talk to people. You're not shy. You're, you know, you're not afraid to go knock on doors. Why don't you try something? And, um, I think through a friend of mine in high school is how I found this company that I was working for, just a local business to business telephone sales company. So, um, and then from there, I realized I liked it. I mean, I found that I liked solving people's problems. I thought that it was, it, it's a challenge and that was really fun. And then when I was introduced to City Search, I really loved the model. I remember, I mean, and this is, I'm going to totally date myself here, but this is in 98. So, you know, most people had an AOL dial up. It wasn't, you. I had an internet and I had an AOL um, account email, but everyone was still trying to figure this out. And I remember again, I'm telling all these stories about my dad. He's probably not going to love it, but going home and telling my dad this part too, like before I even, you know, so twice I'm the, I, when I first was getting this job, I was like, this is so cool. And you can put like the restaurant online and you can go, it's like this online directory and you can look up all this stuff. And my dad's like, no one's ever going to do that. Um, but you know, when city search went public and we, he had some friends and family stock, he was glad that it worked out. Back, you've had such a diverse experience, Mandy, like City Search, Wells Fargo. Uh, like, where do you think you got the most development, whether it's as a rep or leadership? Like, where do you like in the question? The reason I ask this question, sometimes we think it's at the company that scaled the quickest, but sometimes it could be the company where you struggled the most. Right. Uh, so I'm just curious, like looking back, like, where do you think you developed the most and why? Oh, great question. I feel like I've developed different skills in different places. And I agree with you, Poya. I feel like a lot of times I learn more from failure sometimes than success because it does cause you to take a look at why did this go wrong? What could we have done different? How do I do it differently again? I think there's nothing wrong with failing. Um, in fact, I think that's how you learn. Only if you recognize and are able to say I failed and here's why and I'm not going to repeat the same mistake. So, um, so I'm a big fan of that. I, and also a different, these have been different stages of my life, right? So I feel like City Search was such a great, um, I really learned how to 
to think, to start using data to make decisions, how to, um, you know, operate in a fast moving environment. I, um, you know, was in sales for a year and a half. I opened new markets. I then ran the Atlanta office um, at 25. I was the youngest GM that we had um, and my market was number one. So um, out of 35 markets. So, um, but it, so I think that for me, a lot of it has been just, you know, so I was able, I was fortunate enough that I had folks there that believed in me and gave me a chance and I'm so high on responsibility, I wasn't gonna let them down. But um, so there was a lot of learning there just around how to operate in that kind of environment. Um, and also how to get your teams, you know, I was fortunate to have people that believed in me and so how to start treating other people like that. Um, I, the reason I went to Wells Fargo though is because I felt like I lacked a lot of process. Um, when you're in a company, as you mentioned, that moves so fast, a lot of times you don't have, it's just sort of like, let's try this, let's try that. And, um, but what I really wanted to understand is how do you really build out process and infrastructure and, um, you know, running uh, a huge inside sales payment processing team was helpful <laughs> to figure that out. And then plus, I also ran a team that we worked with the bank to get all of the bank referrals. So, um, so I learned a lot there. Um, one of the biggest things I learned, though, is that you know, the bigger that you go, the longer it takes to get things done. And the more people that have to be involved and there is a happy medium, it just, we didn't move fast enough. So, um, so, but that was a great for me in infrastructure. And then the place where I probably learned the most, cause I did a lot of failing and then succeeding as living social. We grew really quickly. We made a lot of mistakes, um, but we also got a lot of things right on culture and figuring things out. Um, and I'm, I feel like, you know, so much of my team still to this day is always on our, you know, talking to each other saying, you know, best job ever because of the people that we brought in. Um, and, you know, I think then I was fortunate to go to benefits that had a similar kind of culture and similar kind of folks um, figuring things out. So, but I'd say that if you put yourself in a position where you're not sure, of all the answers, but you're willing to fail some and learn is that's where you're going to grow. Yeah. My, my favorite acronym for failing is uh, forever acquiring important lessons. So like whenever <laughs> you're in that moment, you don't think about it, but like you got to bring it up. Some people say like first attempt on learning, but I, I like the former a little more. Uh, one of the things you brought up, which is I thought was really important is when you move up the ladder, right. And people give you a chance uh, like that has its benefits, right? Because you have arguably maybe some trust there already. But what if you're joining a new organization like Zenefits and you take over a team and take over a person like Robbie where there's that arrogance and you got to build that trust, right? Like, how do you like- I didn't say arrogance, you, you said that. No, no, I <laughs> said that, of course. That's, I, I, I've been wanting to throw some shades at the co-host, you know? It's like, <laughs> this, is, this is a perfect opportunity to do that. But uh, what I'm trying to get at is like sometimes, right? Like it takes that, it takes a little bit of time to build that credibility and like win over that trust. Like what have you frankly seen work in your case? Sure. Yeah, I've had to do that a few times. And I think there's a couple things that I've learned um, and in some cases from not getting it right, <clears throat> especially um, at Living Social initially. Um, two of those things are, one is it people really care about as much as, uh, well, let me take a step back and say, 
the interesting thing about being in a fast growing company is that there's a lot of change. The interesting thing about people is inherently we don't like change. So you put those two things together and it can be an interest, you know, people want all this excitement, but then every change is like, wait, but how's that going to impact me? Um, and so obviously bringing a new leader in is one of those things. Um, and so, you know, to use Robbie as an example, he had put a lot of sweat equity in. He'd been one of the first SDRs. He'd moved, he'd been with the company. He'd moved, he started this office. He started building it out. He was doing a great job, but it's very normal for someone to say like, okay, wait, this other person's coming in. Are they gonna move my cheese? What's gonna happen here? And um, so I really try to assure people that number one, I'm not gonna make any changes for the first 30 days or so, which can be hard because you, you know, you're brought in to make changes, frankly. Um, but it's like, what I want to do is just understand what's happening. I'm going to meet with everyone, understand what's working, why you joined, get to know everyone. And um, so that they feel like that they can, you know, you start to build some of that trust because the reality is the way you can make changes longer term is by building that, that trust. Um, so, and, the second piece is just trying to be as transparent as you can. I was upfront about, we are gonna to have to make some changes, but what I wanna do is make sure that there are changes that are not just a benefit for the company, but for you. You know, Our goal here is to make you successful and start to paint a picture and a vision for them, right? People want to know that they're part, I mean, the reality is we all join a company because we're excited, hopefully about the product. If you're in sales, you're passionate about it, but then you also wanna be excited about the team and what you're going to learn and it is about how are you going to develop this person and so one of the things that we work to do use benefits as an example was really create um, an atmosphere on the sdr team where it was about growth that you're going to come in here you're going to learn you're going to get the best you know infrastructure to really learn how to sell learn the product and get promoted faster than if you were to go to to so to a um Salesforce or somewhere else. So, you know, really we tried to say you're getting the same kind of, we brought that same kind of development program here. We built out a really good um, development program as well as career path. It was really driven by their results. So it made the team feel more in control. Um, and then therefore they were more excited, right? So I think being transparent, really getting to know them, positioning everything is why this is good for you. And then testing before you roll out so that you can say, hey, you know, we met with a small group of folks and we walked through it with them, like getting people's input into things. They wanna feel mm -hmm. like they're heard. Um, and there's ways you can do that so that it is, um, so that it's, um, so that it's contained and it's not input about every single thing and you can't control half of what happens in the company. But those things I think help people feel like they're heard and they're a part of this and that they understand the why that you're, why you're doing things instead of just making changes and then they don't understand those things. What, what do you, do you think Mandy, was there something that Mandy did to win over your mm -hmm. trust or, or did it happen gradually from your perspective? So it's funny, I, I actually do think there was like a specific uh, moment and, and it's, you know, looking back on it, Mandy, it's interesting, like hearing your city search story about, you know, being mid 20s, running a big office in, in Atlanta. Um, that was kind of my experience at Zenefits mm -hmm. in like a condensed time frame. And frankly, looking back on it, I was out over my skis a little bit, right? By the time, by the time you arrived and like, as you get older, you appreciate so much of like the guidance and things that like leaders you worked for did like after the fact. And I know that was the case for me, especially, but one thing I remember that you did tactically um, after coming in 
And um, so I'll, I'll answer this question in two parts. One is like what you did initially that that like won me over as, as you know, one of the leaders for that team. And then, and then looking back on it, what's something that I looked at. So the thing that happened in person was I remember you gave us really um, uh, specific like areas of ownership. And we had like a couple gaps on the team. And one of the gaps for this, you know, this was a 250 person SDR team. And pretty much everybody was like, you know, a year of tenure and maybe less aside from myself and a few others. So it was a very green team, a lot of people. Uh, we were trying to map the entire US overnight. Like it was an ambitious project. And one of the things, you know, we had this 250 person team. So we were booking thousands of meetings every month, but only like 60% of them were showing up. Like it was a pretty big gap of like what we were like actually booking and what was like actually becoming pipeline. And Mandy, I remember you, you assigning my ownership like on that project pretty quickly after we started working together and giving me like some, some deadlines. And when I had to like deliver kind of like a plan and like a rollout and we did, you know, I, I, and it was a great thing for me because like I really respond well to responsibility and ownership. And we, you know, we delivered this project and we, you know, instrumented a lot of enablement for the team and training and we're able to get that number up closer to like 80% after a couple months, which, you know, in that big of an organization made a pretty big difference in terms of the pipeline we delivered. And going through that project, it started to just click in my brain about, you know, um, getting somebody who comes in above you as a leader, like respecting the change that they're going to need to make, but also like being told like what your area of ownership is, like having that clarity for me was so big. And it allowed me to like zoom in and like really like wrap my hands around this project. And, and looking back on it now, I remember, I mean, you know, you're, you're a mother uh, of three and you were, I remember commuting from Marin to SFO for a 6 a.m. flight every second Monday of the month to get out to Phoenix. And looking back on that, I mean, I was, there were, you know, little minor things in my life that I was complaining about that were a lot easier than that. And so I also like just had a lot, like it's, it sort of dawned on me over the time, like, oh, wow, this is, this is um, a lot of commitment. Um, so those were a couple of things that, that come to mind that kind of like won my trust over. But, uh, but hearing your story about City, um, the experience of City Search really stands out because it, I, I can relate. Yeah, and it is, you know, I think trying to <clears throat> take, again, the opportunity, I was fortunate to have a great regional um, director at City Search that was my boss, and she did the same thing, right? She's like, well, here's a challenge we're having. Why don't you figure this out? Um, and so that's one of the things that I've had, you know, been fortunate enough to have people model that for me. And so being able to take that and pass that down and realize you don't have to be, in fact, like your team usually has great um, insight and better than you can because you're trying to do a lot of different things at one time. So the more you get them involved, the better ideas and the better, um, you know, the better, well, ideas you're going to come up with and then also be able to execute it faster. And you're teaching them. I mean, they're, they're probably more naturally inclined to do it, right? Because yep. it's their idea. So it, the, the more you can collaborate, the better. Um, I, I'm shifting gears here because I want to give you the opportunity. What do you do now in your consulting practice? Do you mind sharing a little bit with, with your listeners what you're up to now? Andy? Oh, sure. Yeah. So one of the things that I realized after going through and scaling teams um, in big ways and in a lot of ways, um, making a lot of mistake, I pretty much probably made every mistake out there um, in doing in my um, in-house career, is that I'm really passionate about the 
the go-to-market fit. So once somebody has a product market fit, how do you roll that out, build your initial team, build the infrastructure, have a plan that works? I um, had a lot of um, either investors when I was, um, that were on boards of companies where I was in-house, reach out to me over the years saying, hey, I just invested in this company. Can you talk to the CEO? He doesn't have any go-to-market experience and he's got a bunch of questions or can you go run this team? And one of the things um, that stood out to me is just there's a gap out there. Um, if you think about it over the last five to 10 years, you know, outsourcing your CFO, outsourcing HR, outsourcing these, um, some of these specific um, areas of expertise has become the norm. But nobody thinks about the majority of, um, of CEOs, founders don't have go-to-market experience. And then what they're trying to do is do it their, on their own but that's taking time away from them actually doing things that are inherently going to defend their product. You know, most of them are product and tech. They should be spending more time on that. Um, and so you know, we can come in and in three months really help them build that bottoms up model, get a plan, get all the right, you know, here are the roles you need. Here's the quotas. Here's the um, compensation plan. Here's the process. We'll stand up all your technology and your tech stack. We'll help you hire the right people. If you don't have them, a lot of cases they either have, you know, need a sales leader and we can do that or they have somebody they just haven't done all that stuff before so we provide that person the infrastructure so that they can operate the team um, and then we do have a phase where we just um, continue to manage um, revenue operations for them so it's really helping people accelerate growth but do it without making all the mistakes that um, that I certainly have and other companies do as well yeah that's and, and I've had a chance um, to, to see some of the companies and some of the work you guys have done and, and kind of doing like the three month sprint model of taking, you know, a lot of the playbooks of what, what have been proven to work for SaaS businesses or early stage businesses and then like instrumenting that and then putting, like you said, a leader in place to, to then scale it. And Mandy, I'm really curious because you, you know, between the work you're doing with Rise and I know that you're also involved with a couple uh, funds, which I, we'd love to talk a little bit more about too, but you've got like an inside look at a lot of early stage and, and growth stage, you know, software businesses. Um, and given everything that's going on right now, it would be really interesting just to like hear if you have any like data points or takeaways specifically on like the sales side and like what you're seeing companies doing that's that's either working well given COVID and given everything that's going on in the world or, or maybe not working well. Just like any insights that you see kind of having that inside view. Yes, good question. So I was really curious. I think everybody saw you know, March as we started to close the world up in the second half of March, people started to, nobody, it's unprecedented, right? So nobody really knew what was going to happen. I had um, been running a team in 2008 when we went through the economic recession, but very different. Um, you know, we knew why it was happening. We knew what needed to happen to pull us out where this has been so much more uncertainty. Nobody knows, you know, what is, when can we go back to, there's just this looming uncertainty out there. So, um, a lot of people saw obviously big changes in their pipeline in April with companies shifting to really, really making decisions internally. You know, it became very quickly and, and, you know, as an operating partner at stage two capital, this is what we were doing with our portfolio companies. Okay. Let's look at your cash burn. Let's look at your plan. Let's look at, you know, let's think about your forecast. How is this going to impact you and put together a couple different scenarios? You know, let's look at where you can save money. 
let's look at, um, and then the second piece was how do you manage taking a lot of places, you know, everybody had a team coming into the office. So let's look at how we're going to operate remotely and how are you managing your team around that? Um, and how are we managing morale team? So I feel like most companies were doing that in April. And as a result, a lot of pipelines suffered um, because people weren't necessarily having conversations. Um, what I have seen is in May, now um, folks have more of a go forward plan and um, and are having those conversations again. Um, the difference, I think, in people that have that are still seeing less impact to their revenue than others um, is that there's been two schools of thought. One was, hey, let's make sure our team feels like, I mean, there is a morale, you know, it's an uncertain time for everyone. So let's just have conversations with whoever will talk to us and we'll get, you know, let's open up our ICP, open up the buyer or who we think, you know, we're going to talk to and just have conversations so that we've got this full pipeline. So that was one school of thought. The second school of thought is let's really be you know, really identify who that decision maker in and use is and use this as a time to go after that. So let's lock down on, hey, this is our decision maker, but let's also lock down on what are the verticals that are least impacted right now that we should be going after and targeting? And what is that value prop? Because we need to be changing our value prop. What people aren't thinking about right now to we can help you grow sales as fast. They're thinking about you know, cost savings. They're thinking about increased productivity on their team how to manage your team effectively in, in this scenario that is a scenario that's going to continue for a while. So the companies that were able to pivot faster around, let's only focus on these verticals, let's really, let's redo our messaging and we're gonna hold tight to talking to these decision makers, saw a decrease in pipeline, but they've seen an increase in their close rate and um, a faster velocity of close. So there's a company we work with, um, Negotiatus, and they, um, you know, they do um, basically helping companies um, with their all of their buying. Um, they bring in all of the um, any kind of um, procurement, and so they were able to really talk about, you know, especially companies that have several different locations. They're a much more cost effective because you get the strength of their buying. Um, so they were able to really, but just, but you know, gems were a big part of what they did before. So they stopped talking to gems and they started talking more to professional services. Some other companies really, um, instead of going after, you know, operations really went after the finance guy who was making those decisions and found that they were closing faster. And that those people have more time now to talk and these are the kind of decisions they're making. So they were able to, um, and they just had in May their best ARR month ever. Yeah, that's actually what you want as a sales leader, as a company leader, because you're getting more done with less. So, uh, well, and ultimately, that's what you want. I've never been yeah. a fan of just call to call. And Robbie knows this. Like, we really focused, um, you know, going back to a Zenefits example, um, you know, we really focused on qualified, you know, demos like we are setting qualified demos but having quality conversations qualifying them and then setting the demos and if somebody can do that in 10 calls i don't care i don't you know the activity because what you don't want to do is teach people that there's a difference between being busy and productive and busy for the sake of busy is not going to do anyone any good <clears throat> the better thing is to make only 10 calls but to the right decision maker get the right person on the phone and um you know and be able to have that conversation that resonates with them. It's may take you a little bit longer, but 
to get to that person, but it's going to be a better conversion. Things I definitely felt as this COVID thing set in and going to working from home. One, I learned that I am an extrovert to the fullest extent. I get my energy from other people and I'm just completely exhausted at the end of the day because I'm like having to like summon all this energy on my own and I'm like looking for, you know, Poya or somebody else like nearby and, and I, you got to go to Zoom to find people. And I think one of the things that, you know, that you're stuck with as a sales leader or a salesperson going into this new environment is like, you know, how do I fill my calendar and how do I like measure my own productivity? How do I seem busy? And I think to your point, Mandy, like there was this reactionary, like, let me just like reach out to anybody on the totem pole high or low and try to get some calls going and just like get some you know get some action going in my pipeline and I think like you said a lot of people got stuck in a place of um, going through a lot of top of funnel pipeline instead of being like really targeted so I'm, I'm and I think you're right that like um, the best sales leaders help like sharpen their team's focus on like what you know what verticals what what personas what ICP if you will matter right now and how to like speak to that do you think that's something that's going to continue for a while? Like, do you think we're kind of entering maybe a little bit of like a new era and that, that that may continue? Or do you think that's more like a moment in time, just just given everything that's going on? And once we go back to work, it'll be back to business as usual. That's a good question. <clears throat> I mean, when I think about it and break it down to sales at its fundamental core, right? It is about solving a problem. You're either solving a problem or bringing pleasure to somebody. And, you know, there is a, there's one person that's going to make that decision. And, you know, until I always joke with teams that when people are always trying to, you know, I'm like, you have to pick up the phone and talk to somebody. You're not going to do a deal over email. If you were, then we wouldn't need salespeople anymore. Um, but it's not the way that people buy. So it's tough because I think that um, there's certainly ways that we've modernized how you get to this person and messaging and, and in more complicated sales, you do have to get buy-in of other people. A lot of times, depending on the product, the decision maker wants to know that the user or the folks that are also going to be using this are bought in. I think right now though, we are seeing people make more decisions based on, look, if there is a cost impact to us, that's gonna help us, I'm willing to go ahead and make that decision. And I don't know if that'll change in the future, um, but it's certainly something that people should be taking advantage of right now. The question I actually wanted to ask before Robbie and I, I, I was thinking, should I go back to it? Should I not go back to it? But I'm gonna go back to it is, um, the thing you talked about earlier is this gap that you saw for, right? And I think sometimes when you work some companies, they're doing really well or they're successful even though they need some help whereas others like need significant help, right? And they can really benefit from your services. What are some patterns now that you've done this that separate those two companies? Like the ones that you think have this go to market, go to market motion down versus the ones that don't? Yeah, great question. There's a couple of things. So part of it is on the, who you're targeting. It's, you know, when you're early stage and you're still trying to get product market fit, you are talking to several different verticals or size of customer trying to figure out who, what, who really is your customer and who resonates. And then on top of that, typically you have friends and family. So you know, early investors are bringing other people in. So there is this, um, this more randomized um, sales motion. And you need to, once you're going to market, you need to get out of that. You need to take a look at 
okay, who have we sold? But more importantly, who are we retaining and who's growing with us? Because those are the folks that we need to be going after. Um, one of the things that we do when we sit down and talk to folks is, and we usually work with folks that have just raised series A or they're in seed raising series A, but we talk about here's what investors are gonna wanna see to raise your next round. And so, you know, this is, you know, they care about churn um, and net, you know, net new revenue. They care about obviously growth um, and how you're growing, but with that, the unit economics associated with that. And so, you know, here's let's benchmark, let's go look at where you are now, and then let's make a plan for how you get to where you're going to be. Um, and some companies have already thought about that. Some haven't thought about it at all. Um, but that's where in order to do that, we need to back into who really is the customer that's signing up now. Let's be more methodical about going after that person. And then the second piece is what does your team actually need to be doing um, every day, every week to get, um, so the leading indicator KPIs. Um, so, you know, how many first, how many discovery calls do they need to have and how much pipeline is that gonna create? So if we back into, you know, right now you're closing 20%, we need to create five times in pipeline. And that means that you need to be putting this many deals in assuming that your average deal is X. A lot of times they just haven't even done that kind of math. They're doing more reactive, like, well, this is how much is in our pipeline. So this is what we think we're gonna forecast versus this is how much I need to have in my pipeline in order to hit that goal. And so it's all reverse engineering um, their program for them. Um, but that's where we look at the leading indicators. And again, some companies have that, they may or may not be right. Some haven't gotten there yet. They're still just, hey, let's, they're still operating towards their quota at the end of the month. Um, but everybody needs a recipe to get there. And then the third thing we look at is that leading indicator of churn. So looking at, okay, who, let's look at who you have so far, the people that churned, why did they? And what did the people that stayed do differently? And is there something that you can do that you know once they do those things, they're going to be on board, right? So once they log in, once they process their first transaction, once they do whatever it is with the company, sometimes we kind of have to guess, but we're gonna put a stake in the ground so we can start measuring against that and really build a post sales to get there. Because um, there's so much emphasis. And I think actually another thing that I've seen during COVID that's interesting, you know, for so long there's been so much interesting just on, on growth, right? 100% growth year over year, that's what we want. We wanna make sure the unit economics look good, 12 month payback. But right now, if um, there's still a lot of capital out there to be had, but you have to be realistic that the last two months, some companies haven't seen that kind of growth. So, the, so what investors are now turning towards is, well, as your unit economics say the same, and what are you seeing on churn? You know, because churn right now is really showing how valuable people think your product is or not. If you just went through the past two months and 50% of your base left you because they're like, well, we don't need this, let's get rid of it then you're gonna have a problem in the future um, versus if you were able to retain most of your customers and or maybe you put them on a one or two month hiatus and then they're coming, but now they need you again. It's a different story. And so companies that aren't looking at that and how to manage that, um, but will need to raise money in the next 12 months, um, will be in trouble. Yeah, absolutely. And it'll be really interesting I think we'll want to have you back on in six six months to see how some of these predictions play out, right? And see like what the world looks like then. And especially around, like you said, companies who can manage churn and sales leaders who can keep their teams focused. Um, well, Mandy, this has been 
super fun. And I think we could probably go for another 90 minutes, but, um, but want to be respectful of your time. And we, we typically like to wrap the podcast up with two questions. Like I, Poya and I each kind of like to ask a final question uh, before we wrap. So Poya, I'll, I'll kick it to you first um, to, to ask yours. Yeah, we, we've had a couple of sales leaders, uh, Manny, where they argue that the demo, the discovery should all be baked into one because the buyer is busy. Uh, do you agree with that or do you have a different kind of answer or response to that? Yes. Okay. I think it depends on the product and the, um, and your sales cycle for SMB. I tend to agree with that because it's hard to get, um, that decision maker on the phone. And once you get them, you know, you want to, and they've agreed to give you some of your time. Um, and typically those are shorter sales cycles. You want to do the discovery and be able to pivot over for, um, more mid-market enterprise where, you're still uncovering who actually has to be part of this and what is the use case and you probably want to customize your demo more. And I always want to make sure that I'm a stickler for making sure the decision maker is going to be on the demo. If the decision maker isn't going to be there, I don't want to do it. I don't want to waste my time. And um, because I feel like that's putting fool's gold in your pipeline. And a lot of times people will still you know, do it, but then you're, you're relying on that person to then go and tell the decision maker how this, and they're never going to be able to do it like you can. And so if you can just upfront hold your ground and say, Hey, you know, typically, um, here's the folks that come on board and here's why, um, a lot of times I'll do something like we're going to do an ROI analysis or something. So typically the CFO and these other folks are on, if that person at that point won't go get that person, then I want to have that conversation right away and understand why not, because they're not seeing value now. Um, so what's the difference if you do a demo for them or not? Um, so I, so I hate to be, I like to be decisive, but in this case, I would say it really depends on understanding your customer's journey and your product. You know, for a customer that is super busy and it's one decision maker and it's SMB, yes, typically that works. You know, if your customer does need three or four other things involved and you really just need to upfront find out all this information and customize it, then I would say split them. I, I can't add any more value than you added to that, to that answer. So well, well communicated. The only thing I'll add is uh, the profile of the buyer makes a difference. Like if you're selling to a developer that frankly doesn't want to sometimes interact with sales and they just want to get into the product, like that's a different True. way of, I would say selling than if you're doing sales or marketing. But I think you addressed all the points that, that anybody should know about. So thanks. Robbie, I'm going to turn it to you. Yeah. So my question, Mandy, is like looking back on, you know, looking back on your career, um, if you were to go back and talk to Mandy, maybe coming back from, from Steamboat Springs early on um, after graduating college, like what's maybe one bit of advice or something that you've like learned over the years that you would go back and like communicate to your younger self? Great question. Um, so I'd say there's two things, one that I think I did and one that I didn't do well. Um, the first is always ask people for feedback and what you could do better. Um, I think early days when I was just, you know, a sales rep, every time my VP would come in town at City Search, I would want him to ride with me. I'd, I'd say, what could I be doing better? Teach me. I want to learn. Um, and that's something that I've done my whole career. Um, so many people are afraid of feedback. Um, but the reality is, is that if people are willing to give you feedback, it means they're investing in your development. Um, and you should take that. So that's one thing that I would tell myself to make sure to keep doing and not be afraid of. Uh, the second thing I'd say is that um, 
one thing I wish that I had done more of is get more um, input into my career growth from folks. Um, I think I made, you know, when I was leaving Living Social, I was, I was commuting at that point across the United States. I had just had my second child. Um, I'd been there three years. Consumer, um, consumer love for um, that for um, online deals was waning, and we are, you know, it was just a tough. I felt like I wasn't doing a good job at home or um, or at work, and I needed to make a decision. And I was choosing my family, but I instead of making that decision with my CEO and the board and then using their support to go find something I did, I felt like I needed to have a job before I could quit. And go, looking back, I mean, I had a CEO that was so supportive and board members that were supportive. And I took a job that I probably wouldn't have taken if I would have just, just had that, that transparent conversation with them and you know let them help me guide so i'd say trust in the people that are giving you feedback that they want the best for you and if for some reason something isn't working out have that conversation i know that i've always you know now looking back on the way for folks that have worked with for me i've always wanted to i would much rather them come to me and say hey i don't think this is working out for this reason and you know how can you help me transition so i wish that i had done a better job of that yeah, that's awesome. And it takes, um, it takes guts to go have that conversation for, for somebody you work with. So that's, that's a good one for sure for folks that you're in a similar position. Well, Mandy, I just want to say thanks again. This has been so fun, um, jam packed with like actionable insight, everything from like your, your journey and your career to, you know, uh, developing as a leader internally versus coming in, um, you know, later on to some predictions and stuff that you're seeing in the world right now with everything going on. Um, if our listeners want to find you online, like where's a good place to, to get in touch, whether it's Twitter or LinkedIn or, or anything like that. Either one is great. Um, on Twitter, I'm at Mandy dash Cole and then LinkedIn, you can find me as well. We're going to say TikTok having three daughters. <laughs> <laughs> they are on TikTok well, all the time, <laughs> but maybe that's, <laughs> that's for the future. But, uh, in all seriousness, thanks so much. Uh, my favorite part was throwing shade at Robbie, but uh, the personal <laughs> stories as well. That was, that was great. So really appreciate you, Manny. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Helps engineers and engineering managers become great leaders. And how do they do that? Well, Plato helps you find the perfect mentor thanks to its network of experienced engineering leaders who work at the world's best tech companies. For a monthly fee, you have unlimited access to mentors who can help when you have challenging situations as a manager. Visit them at PlatoHQ.com.